Well, welcome back. Thanks again for uh, sticking with me uh, through this series. This is our uh, last week on the Old Testament, and we'll move into the New Testament um, and some journeys in the New Testament. Uh, today's lesson, as I mentioned in my prayer, uh, is the wisdom literature. Uh, so wisdom for the road. How can we use Israel's wisdom traditions as a source in our life of faith? And in many ways, today's topic is a little bit of a, of a different sort of beast than our last several weeks, because we're not really talking about a journey, uh, necessarily, in the wisdom literature in the way that we talked about the exodus, um, or even the exile, about people moving. And so we're going to focus instead on this weird-ish group of writings in the Old Testament that have to do with living wisely or living according to wisdom. And one way that this clearly connects with our topic is the way of wisdom. Wisdom is often depicted as a way of life or a way of ordering your life. And so we're going to think about this wisdom literature as a, as a way. Um, how can we live according to this way of wisdom? And how can wisdom help us to find our own ways on this journey of faith? Those are our sort of two overlapping and central core, uh, questions for today's time together. Again, uh, just to remember, uh, remind ourselves that we've already journeyed a good bit over the last three weeks. Uh, we started in the first week with just sort of starting with a baseline of what does it mean that the people of faith are often a people on the move and constantly moving from one place to another. What does that look like? And what does that then have to do with all of the movement, maybe, that we experience in our own lives? Whether that's physical movement, some of us have located from different parts of the world to be here in Atlanta. Whether that's metaphorical, we've, we've grown in our journey as a parent or as a, as a spouse. Um, our spiritual journeys, but also taking into consideration this age of constant movement of migration, uh, the 21st century being called the age of migration by certain scholars. And in the second week, we looked at one of these fundamental foundational stories in Israel's faith life, which is the Exodus. They're leaving slavery in Egypt and pursuing the promised land and wandering about for 40 years in the wilderness. And we talked about what about that journey uh, is what was that journey like? And, and one of the things that I said in week two was journeying for the Israelites in the, in the Exodus tradition wasn't a great thing in a lot of ways. It was a place of risk. It was a place of disobedience and, and loss of trust. Um, and, and so we reflected on where are we like the Israelites in our own journeys? Are we reluctant? Uh, do we prefer our slavery uh, to the adventure or the promised future of God? And then last week we talked about the exile, and if, if you'll remember, there was a lot of biblical history to cover in the time between the exodus and the exile. And so, in many ways, I feel like today's lesson is we get to like put the pause button on, because we, we get to sit with this wisdom literature. Um, and the wisdom literature is, um, is, is interesting because it, it doesn't necessarily have a clear timeline. Uh, we're not entirely sure. We have guesses, but we don't know entirely when it was written. And more likely than not, good morning, it was probably preserved uh, and passed on over the years and sort of had an accumulating and growing tradition. So what are we going to do today? Well, I want to start uh, with some sort of foundational conversation about wisdom and the wisdom literature. Let's get us all up to speed about what we're talking about when we're talking about wisdom and the wisdom literature. And then we're going to spend a good bit of time talking about Proverbs, which is in, in most cases probably the piece of literature or the piece of wisdom literature that most of us know best. We, we know this literature. We can probably, if we, if we were pressed, think about a proverb that we've heard from the book of Proverbs. And then we're going to talk about wisdom reconsidered in Job and Ecclesiastes. We're going to talk about what are Job and Ecclesiastes doing in the wisdom tradition. In some ways, we could call Job and probably most certainly Ecclesiastes anti-wisdom. 
What does that look like? Why is that in our canon? Shouldn't it all be one thing? And then uh, at the end, as I've, as I've tried to do in our lessons, um, I'll, we'll think about wisdom on the way. What does wisdom in our spiritual life look like? And what do these three books tell us um, about that process? So to begin with, the four on wisdom in the wisdom literature, and again, par for my course thus far, I'm going to open with you. And uh, again, I think uh, a relatively low ball uh, question. And it is this, what makes a person wise? Or how would you define wisdom? So what I want is for you to find someone with whom you can speak and answer the question, what makes a person wise? Or how would you define wisdom? All right, and have at it. Good morning and welcome. I'm Chris. I'm Susan. Susan, nice to meet you. I'm sure if you'd like, these women would like to talk to you or you can talk to me about what is this question. It says, what makes a person wise or how would you define wisdom? Hmm. Making the right decisions. Making the right decisions. And I, yeah, making the right decision, sometimes, but maybe not always, you accepting know, the, the advice. But the, the wisdom is knowing the difference. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, practical wisdom. I think sometimes wisdom comes with experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Nice. And I think some old people don't. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, um wisdom, I, I liked what you said, wisdom has to do with being able to choose the difference, you know, when when to make a right decision, when to accept somebody else's advice. Um Wisdom seems to be something that you, you acquire through experience. Um, it's not just about having a bunch of facts in your head. Yeah. It's a, applied knowledge, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Right. It's not being able to spout forth yeah. everything, yeah. but... And it really, really stopped it. It has to do with... Experience yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay, good. I've got some thoughts. Okay, so... Please, please, uh, please share with me some of either what you said or what you heard said by your partner or friend uh, next to you. So what is wisdom or what makes a person wise? Okay, that's a that's a it sounds like you've you've used this definition in the past. I have, as a philosopher, I have characterized this, uh, formulated this uh, definition. Yeah. Uh, a long time. Ago. Okay. And I've tried to Okay. All right. So learning, 
learning from past experience uh, would be an aspect of wisdom. Yes? Uh, it's more than intelligence. It's knowing how to use the intelligence. It's knowing that a tomato and a strawberry are both fruit, but a tomato doesn't go into a smoothie. Oh. <laughs> Dang it, I've been getting it wrong this whole time. Uh, yeah, no, sorry, but so th this idea that, that wisdom is more than intelligence, it's applied knowledge. Um, uh, we all maybe know that person who's very bright, very intelligent, but would put a tomato in a smoothie. Yes. What else? Yeah. Yeah. As to do they know it from deep within or have they been taught by someone that was wise? Yeah. Is there something that gets passed down yeah. that seems to work for them and maybe could work for us? Yeah. And then of course we think about the wisdom that's come from our parents. Yeah. And we sometimes question <laughs> that. So you have to have yeah. about wisdom. Yeah. Oh, so 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 many layers. There's this there's this idea that we we sort of we can think about wise people in our lives. There's always it seems like been people who are associated with wisdom, and these people usually represent something like a, a fountain of previous wisdom. And then if we think about our own parents, we have the challenge of accepting or refusing the wisdom that they gave us. Um, sometimes a parent's wisdom can be right on, and other times not so helpful. And in many ways, uh, wisdom is, that, is, is knowing how to choose, knowing how to discern. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sue said something else about how adults sometimes can be dunces and children can sometimes have the greatest wisdom, um, which doesn't ironically come from years of experience or preparation. It just, there's a keenness to them, maybe a curiosity to them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so the wisdom is, is often learned in the classroom of life, not in uh, a literal classroom through mistakes. Yeah, here. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm just to make sure that everybody in the back can hear it. That wisdom sometimes leaves more room for uh, uh, ambiguity between black and white and and right and wrong. That sometimes there's there's actually uh, wisdom that teaches you that maybe things are not as clear as they might have previously appeared to be. Um, so there's that. Let's do one more, and then we're gonna we're gonna move on. Oh, I got to unpack this. <laughs> the ability to practice ready, aim, fire instead of ready, fire, aim. All right, so the shoot, shoot first, ask questions later uh, philosophy of life. I get that. I get that. I get that. So um, just, to, just to sort of supplement and add to some of these conversations that we've heard about wisdom, uh, we, can, we can think about the two words, the Hebrew word and the Greek word, that are most often associated with wisdom in the biblical tradition. So the first one is chokmah. This is the, the Hebrew word, um, which, according to one standard dictionary, has three possible meanings. It can be a skill in technical matters. You may be curious to know that the first person in the Bible, at least in terms of the canonical order, who's identified as wise is a tradesperson. 
It, it happens in the book of Exodus, that wisdom allows and enables sort of the most mundane tasks that we can think of, whether it's fitting a joint or building a tent or weaving. This is wisdom in the book of Exodus. But in addition to that, we might think about chokmah as experience or shrewdness. We heard some of that, right? The ability to, to know uh, and discern and detect what's, what's right. Um, Hokmah uh, includes the wisdom of other nations, in particular uh, the Egyptians. The Egyptians have a very famous wisdom tradition that uh, the Israelite wisdom tradition explicitly seems to draw on in places, including in the book of Proverbs. Of course, then there's the Hokmah of Israel. There's God's wisdom, which is somehow right independent and above the wisdom of either the nations or of Israel, and yet maybe is particularly given to them. And then one of the things we'll talk about is when wisdom is personified, when wisdom takes on the, 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 the appearance or the disposition of a person, lady wisdom uh, in the book of Proverbs. And if we turn then to the Greek word, the Greek word uh, is Sophia, and we'll see some overlap. Uh, the, the first definition is the capacity to understand and function accordingly, or wisdom. And here we, we hear a couple of types, natural wisdom and transcendent wisdom. And one of the things that we'll, we're going to explore more in the, the, this talk about wisdom is if there's always a clear break in the wisdom tradition between natural wisdom and supernatural wisdom or revealed wisdom, uh, special revelation and natural revelation. There's transcendent wisdom uh, or, or there's, uh, again, personified wisdom as we see in the Old Testament. Um, and then there's a book called The Wisdom of God. You may or may not be familiar with this sort of deuterocanonical work about wisdom. So um, what one Old Testament scholar whose work I've gone back to again and again in this series says that wisdom consists in when to use an individual saying aptly in context. So wisdom is about contextual application of knowledge. And I will just share briefly with you when I became aware of the difference between wisdom and knowledge as a parent. And this was when we had our first child, Micah. We were very young parents, and we decided that we were going to read books about sleep. We were going to get sleep right. And so we read two books that are diametrically opposed to one another, one another about sleep habits. You know, one is the swallow them up tight, let them cry it out. The other is give them more attention. And we drove ourselves crazy in the first six months of our child's life. And his, his neurosis and need for structure is probably an indication that we have done long-term damage. <laughs> but we, it took us six months or nine months uh, to figure out that wisdom with our child was responding to his needs. Um, it wasn't just a sort of, you know, hard application of this stuff we had learned in a book. It was, it was more flexible than that. And we, if we missed a nap, the world wasn't going to end. Our child wasn't going to develop a tail if we missed a nap. And so we became much more flexible. And so one of the things that wisdom is that I think for us as we think about Proverbs and, and the wisdom tradition, again, is the correct application of a saying in context. One of the things that I might challenge us with in Christian circles is we sometimes, in our best interests, can be really bad at saying the right thing at the wrong time. We can say the right thing at the wrong time. It may be biblically accurate, but man, it was the wrong time to say it. And so Proverbs uh, invites us, the wisdom literature invites us to think through that a little bit more. So uh, this is how the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible talks about wisdom. The words for wisdom in Hebrew, chokmah, and in Greek, Sophia, have a long and complex pedigree within the Jewish and Christian scriptures. The Hebrew word and its cognates represent more than their corresponding English words. They stand for an ideology and a worldview of a distinct group within Israel, 
a group with its own language and its own concerns. So our understanding of wisdom is obviously informed by the biblical tradition, but this author is saying actually the wisdom literature and the wisdom tradition stands sort of as its own stream within the biblical tradition. And so we want to we treat it that way. It's not the same as the narrative. It's not the same as the Pentateuch. It's not the same as the prophets. Uh, it offers us a different vantage point uh, if we study it wise. The second thing that I want to say about the wisdom literature is Solomon. Who remembers King Solomon? Just about everyone, right? King Solomon uh, is known in the biblical tradition as the wise king. This is from 1 Kings. And God gave Solomon wisdom and very great understanding, insight as long as the seashore itself Solomon's wisdom was greater than all the famous Easterners, greater even than all the wisdom of Egypt. Do you hear that thing about Egypt being a wise place with wisdom literature? He was wiser than anyone, more than Ethan the Ezraite or Mahol's sons, Haman, Kalkol, and Darda. His reputation was known throughout the region. Now, before anybody asks, I don't know who those other people are, and I'm not, that's not my interest. So if that's your interest, I'll point you to some resources that you can find later. But the, the, the interest here is that Solomon had this reputation of being a very wise king, wisest among the kings of the earth. And as a result of that, our wisdom literature is associated with Solomon. Just like David is remembered for being sort of the author of the Psalms, and yet not all of the Psalms explicitly mention David, and a number of them are most likely not written by David, the same can be said of the wisdom literature. It almost all sort of points back to Solomon, but it's unlikely that it all came from Solomon. It's more of a memory, a developmental memory of, of connection with Solomon. So where does the, this idea then come of the wisdom literature? One of the things that, that some scholarship on this suggests is that we have Solomon as sort of a model, but more on the ground in the reality is we have a number of different wise counselors that we see in the Hebrew scriptures. And so we have uh, what, what some would call village elders. These would be sort of the, the small government folks or the sort of the people who helped a neighborhood or a community think about their best lives. Um, probably not a, a, a scholar in the sense that we would recognize them as a scholar, but somebody who was learned in the wisdom of life um, and was, was regarded, as we heard earlier, was regarded by the community as a wise person. These were people maybe who would eventually make decisions on behalf of the community. We also know of wise counselors in the royal court. So not just Solomon, the wise king, but we learn of people who served in the courts of other kings. These are people like Daniel, or even Joseph in Genesis, or Esther. And then finally, eventually we get what, what we might think of as a, an entire class of wisdom people, a group of wise people that we might think about as running a school or identifying themselves as an intellectual class. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll talk about after a while in chapter 12, we get the impression that even at this point, there's some notion of a school. So this is Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 10. Because the teacher was wise, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He listened and investigated. He composed many proverbs. The teacher searched for pleasing words and wrote truthful words honestly. So this idea that people would seek out the teacher for knowledge uh, gives some the impression that uh, there was the formation of a professional group. And some of our literature that is not included in the Bible but arises um, after, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, gives us even more of this, this idea that there were schools or uh, communities set up for learning wisdom and passing on wisdom. And so by the time of the, the Hellenistic period, by the time that Alexander the Great had conquered the ancient Near Eastern world, um, it is probably uh, the case that we had a, a wisdom class that was teaching wisdom 
parallel to those who were maybe teaching the more sort of Levitical priestly systems, and that those streams, although not antagonistic to each other necessarily, were parallel by the time, by the 300s uh, BCE or so. Now, I've been mentioning a lot uh, the wisdom literature, and uh, so let me just give you a little bit about the wisdom literature. So, this is uh, one way of talking about a group of writings in the Old Testament um, that fall in the kach part of Tanakh. Does anybody know Tanakh? Have you heard this before? Couple of people. This is, this is how our, our Jewish neighbors refer to their sacred text, the Tanakh. It's the three parts, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And so the wisdom literature is found in the writings section of the Jewish canon. Um, and so in Hebrew, we would, we would find wisdom in Proverbs, in Kohelet or Ecclesiastes, and in the book of Job. But again, in the Greek, uh, we find Ben Sirah and the wisdom of Solomon as examples of this wisdom tradition, this genre of literature. And so, in terms of the origins, it, again, it, it seems as though um, wisdom was collected and passed on, as it is in many of our communities, that, you know, you learn something about how to cook a turkey really well, and you pass that on. That's a, that's a pretty, you know, uh, mundane example. But, that, but eventually, these ideas were collected, codified, passed on. But, but one of the things that we'll see in the book of Proverbs is they're not always consistent. They're not always agreeable. Sometimes, uh, for example, Proverbs will say, it's really, really bad to give and take bribes. But a bribe might help you be successful in this way. So if we're looking in the wisdom literature for an either or, or sometimes we're not going to find it. Sometimes we're going to find a both and, and uh, the wisdom really then is in the application of that knowledge. Not just that you can get it in your head, but you know when it's a good time to give a bribe, and you know when it's a bad time to give a, bar a bribe. And some of you are saying, just don't give any bribes at all. So, what can we say about the final thing that I want to say about, about wisdom and the wisdom literature? What, what, what is a wisdom worldview? Well, as, as uh, John Collins and some other scholars have suggested, is, is this is a distinctive element in the wisdom or in the biblical tradition. You may be surprised to know that the wisdom literature says almost nothing about Israel's history. It doesn't mention the exile or the exodus. It doesn't mention the great prophets. It doesn't have much to say about ritual worship or worshiping in the temple. Just not interested. Not necessarily that it's antagonistic to it, but it's a different stream of information. In many ways, the wisdom literature asks the big questions about life. What is a good life? What is a life worth living? How, how do we have friends? How do we know our enemies? What is the purpose to all of this? These are the, the questions that animate the wisdom literature. These are big questions. These are questions that kids ask you on the way to the grocery store, on the way back from the grocery store, and you really don't have the time to answer them. Just go read the Proverbs, child. Yeah, right. So there's, 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 a, there's this, there's this uh, consistent um, emphasis in the wisdom worldview that values observation. Where do we learn knowledge? Maybe a library, but mostly we learn wisdom by watching, by observing. Can we, can we observe nature? Can we observe our own behavior and the consequences of those behaviors? Can we observe the behaviors of others and see what happens? So wisdom is very practical in its observation. It starts with what can you see? So wisdom is going to have a lot less to say about things that we can't see, like what happens when we die. Our biblical wisdom tradition has very little to say about death, resurrection, uh, these sorts of things, other than saying you're going to certainly die. That's, that's inevitable. Wisdom can observe that because 
everybody that the authors have lived with has died or soon will die. So there's, there's this observation. And then along with that is this idea that the book of nature is where we learn. And so um, I would liken, in, in some ways, I don't know if I've thought this through entirely, but um, poetry, modern poetry, is perhaps a good example of contemporary wisdom literature. Where do you learn about the ways of life and the ways of God? You, you open your eyes and you see nature. You see a flower budding, you see, you see um, plants and animals. It is this ability to read the book of nature, read life, read nature. And, and this is because the wisdom tradition assumes that God's wisdom has sort of been planted, seeded in the world. And so if you want to know what God is like, you don't need a special book. You don't need the prophetic text to tell you to care for the poor. You look at nature. You look at how it works, and that's how it is revelatory. So observation and nature, what in theological terms has been called natural theology, uh, is, is where wisdom is learned according to the wisdom tradition we would, we would call it anthropocentric. That's, that's, that's a coffee word at 12 o'clock. You can just throw that out. Anthropocentric. It means it's centered on humanity and on human relationships. Um, again, it's not, um, it's not wondering about how the cosmos was founded, although later wisdom tradition will go there. But our biblical wisdom tradition is pretty interested in the life the life of the body, the life of relationships, um, how to eat at table, and so forth. And then the last thing that we're going we're gonna to talk about, um, especially towards the end, is that the wisdom worldview is critical. It is critical of the wisdom tradition itself. It's critical of saying, well, I heard that, but I also heard this. And because it observes nature and it observes life, it asks questions. Once again, the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Bible and Theology puts it, puts it this way. A good summary, I think. Wisdom asks the hard questions, and the keepers of the wisdom tradition had the intellectual courage and integrity to keep a record of the previous debates, however unorthodox in their literature. The sages engaged in a ruthless, painful examination of uncomfortable truths. They thereby functioned as a reality check to protest against excessive dogmatism or rigid fundamentalism. A protest against excessive dogmatism or rigid fundamentalism. Some of that was even voiced in our conversation about wisdom, about, about the gray matter, about making room and making space. So, there's the quotation there. Uh, if you wanted to read along with me, you can, you can follow it um, later uh, when I post it. But um, I want to I turn now to Proverbs, which is, actually, I want to pause real quick, because I just covered a lot of ground with the wisdom worldview, wisdom literature, sages and wisdom. And I'm guessing that there's some fuzziness in what I've presented, and perhaps I need to clarify. So what might I clarify before I move on to Proverbs? Yeah. When you hear the phrase scribes and Pharisees, yes. Can you look at the word scribe based on what you've just said? That this is more of a source of wisdom. And these are people that are focused on yeah. not only learning but being sources of that wisdom. Yeah. So the the question is, when the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, mention scribes and Pharisees. Um, are we to understand the scribes uh, in this sort of tradition about wisdom development? And so my short answer would be, I think it's complicated um, by the first century. Um, and I think it sort of depends on who you ask, which commentary you pull off the shelf. Um, because scribes could very well be the scribes who who are simply the only ones who, in a pre-literate or mostly illiterate society, were able to handle things like contracts and agreements. More likely than not, though, you'll, you'll hear some contemporary English translations um, translate that word as lawyer. 
So there are people who are interested in the application of the law. And so in order then to connect that with the, the earlier biblical wisdom tradition, what we have to know is that although Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job do not identify Torah, the five books, the first five books of the Old Testament, as the same as wisdom, later wisdom will. So the, our Greek wisdom letter, literature will say Torah and wisdom are the same. And so in that regard, once we've made that jump, once we've said, okay, wisdom is the same as Torah, and my job as a, as a scribe is to think about the proper application of Torah, then I think we are in the wisdom tradition um, uh, with, with a more focused engagement with the, the teaching of the Jewish law um, and the application. Yeah. What does wisdom get us? So uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I will, this is what I'll say. I'll say we'll get three different answers about what wisdom gives us if we attend closely to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Um, uh, Proverbs is most clear. Wisdom gets you success. And that's why it is anthropocentric. That's why it's this worldly. If you want to be successful, if you want to have a big house and uh, and full storehouse, as we heard in Rebecca's sermon earlier, uh, you, you can get that by wisdom. And, in fact, in Proverbs, as, as we ended last week talking about the curses and the blessings from Deuteronomy, Proverbs represents that theology of saying, you know, probably people who have stuff, they've got that stuff because they made good decisions. And people who don't and are poor... They, they're probably poor because they've made poor decisions. Come, talk to me. All right, so that then leads me to something you said earlier about we don't need a prophetic text yes. to take care of the poor. Yes. We look to nature, but there are a lot of times that nature doesn't take care of the vulnerable community, so we need a prophetic the, text. Absolutely. And proper, I mean, for example, the anti-wisdom is yeah. Ecclesiastes, but it, it, I think if we just had the wisdom literature, we would not we'd be focused on, you know, if the scales are back yeah. the right way. Yeah. Things, you know, it seems that sometimes Jeremiah and others are working against what we would consider common sense. And that, I think that tension is still present. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I want to make sure when I spoke about not needing the prophets, I was saying in the wisdom tradition, they're not referencing them. Does the church today need the prophets as well as the wisdom tr tradition? Absolutely. And, um, the, the limits of common sense are something that um, we don't have to just look to the prophets. We can look to uh, a whole swath of things. But, but there are voices that say, no, wait, common sense doesn't add up. And Job will be one of those. Ecclesiastes will be one of those. Um, but I appreciate what you're saying and what you're pointing out. And because one of the consequences of literature like Proverbs is that it gives the impression that it supports a theology that, that I've deemed unhealthy, which is, you know, God blesses people who are obedient or who are wise. And if you're not blessed, it's your own damn fault. And my, I got what I got because I worked hard. And I think that that theology is, you can find sources of that in Proverbs. I actually don't think that you, that's all you find in Proverbs. Proverbs is a little too um, tense and a little too, it's not as simple as we would make it be. But you can definitely find that sort of thinking that sort of undergirds this idea that, hey, if you, if you have good stuff in your life, it's good on you. It's because you did something. And if bad stuff is happening to you, you better do some examination because what, what have you done wrong? Um, and so I think, I think your, your question, your comment is, is right on, because if we just live in this world, um, I don't know if we have the best reasons to be concerned for the poor and the marginalized, if we're just listening to nature. Because, right, I mean, there's a lot of people who would say, just look at nature and the weakest are going to, you know, they're going to meet their end and the strong are going to be the strong and, uh, and so forth. Huh? Yeah. 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 And so, so this is a good transition um, to the wisdom of Proverbs, um, because in many ways, 
uh, Proverbs represents this idea that the world as we experience it is ordered. It's predictable, and, and so it operates in this way. So Proverbs in, in brief, um, if, we're, if we're looking at Proverbs as a whole, uh, there are two basic parts to Proverbs. Uh, the first part is, is a bit more sort of narrative focused. It's, um, it, it's more developed instructions and reflections on the nature of wisdom itself. And then in the second half, uh, you, this is where you get the Proverbs, you know, uh, just like a dog that returns to its vomit, so is a fool that returns to his folly, right? Um, and so that's where you would get those sort of sayings. But in addition, we could, we could also divide it based on how it identifies sections of it um, based on figures, figures from the past. And so we, we see Solomon is mentioned in a couple of them. Just the words of the wise are mentioned. Um, and then there's the words of Agur, son of Jacob. Again, I'm, I'm not familiar with this guy. Um, and we can maybe have a long Bible study at some point in my office about him. If we, if we should, we, we should. Same with King Lemuel. But this is to suggest that even though parts of so, uh, Proverbs claim to be from Solomon, others of it aren't, uh, even in its biblical, in its, in its written form. So Proverbs in Proverbs. What is a proverb? We've been talking about it. Proverb, according to Jerry Sumney, is uh, it's something that gives us a very narrow glimpse at reality. Proverbs are true if you say them at the right moment, but not if you apply them in the wrong setting, right? We, we can all learn this um, uh, as Christians, as siblings, as parents and children. When to say something at the right time is important. So when we think about Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, what are we, what are we talking about? Well, the, the first thing is that, as I've mentioned, they're based on experience. Uh, some in theological circles are very distrusting of human experience, right? You know these people. We can't trust our experience. Proverbs says that's just about all you got is experience. So you better pay attention. You better observe what's going on. Um, in, in, in many ways, this is um, an appeal to experience that is then collected and passed on. So uh, one wisdom uh, proverb that was passed down to me was something to the effect of, like, you don't have to make all of the mistakes. You can learn from somebody else's mistakes, right? You can, you can learn from other people's errors. You don't have to jump off that cliff yourself. And so that would be an, ex an example of sort of... Um, the experience of the individual, but also experience that's passed down. In many ways, the Proverbs are very practical. They're practically oriented. Um, if you want an example, Proverbs 23 is all about how to eat in the presence of a king. Not always what I'm interested in, but it's very practical if I should ever be invited to the house of a king or a dignitary. Also, and, and at some level, um, this, there's, this there's this question of idealism. There are threads in the book of Proverbs that talk about either oppressing the poor or caring for the poor. They're threads. They're not as pronounced as maybe in the book of Amos. But the problem even with that is that there's no immediate benefit for doing so. So even in those threads, those sort of press against a lot of the wisdom literature, which says you should do this because it's beneficial. Simple as that. And there's, there's, there's some tension there with the, the tension between pragmatism and idealism. Ultimately, all of this is rooted in what I said earlier, this idea that the world is orderly. Uh, that the, if, we, if we look at nature, if we look at the traditions that we have received, it seems to be the case that all things work out uh, in an orderly fashion. And that God is somehow the guarantor of this cosmic order, even though God is maybe not encountered in, uh, in surprising or super special revelation. But God is encountered sort of in the, in the DNA of the created order. And that uh, God, as well in this tradition, sets, a, sets an order to human knowledge. So you can know a lot, but you won't know as much as God. That's sort of the other way in which God plays um, in the book of Proverbs. 
And one of the things um, that as I was preparing this that I thought was a good takeaway was if we, if we think about the Proverbs as being based in observation, so what do, you, what do you pay attention to? What are you observing? And then some process of verifying that. Oftentimes in conversation with other people, in, in weighing what you've observed against other people's experiences, um, that then leads to dispute. I think that many of us as users of the Bible don't realize that it actually has a lot of disputation in it. There's a lot of disagreement in it. There's tension in it. And even in the book of Proverbs, and certainly if we think about all three of the wisdom texts from the Old Testament, there's lots of conversation going on, lots of dispute going on. And so again, if we look to Proverbs um, as, as it was first introduced to me as a youth, as like these are like basic life lessons that we should apply without critical thinking, we're actually working against the wisdom tradition, which the wisdom tradition invites us to, okay, no, I don't, I don't accept that. I don't verify that. I'm going to dispute that. Here's my observation that supports it. And then we can have that conversation. So in many ways, we would be wrong to look to Proverbs for sort of a literal step-by-step -step process, maybe. So um, let me, let me uh, ask you a quiz. True or false? God helps those who help themselves. False, right? This was recently in a Pew study on America's religious literacy. But I would say there are, there's certainly a lot of theology in Proverbs that supports this. Even if it doesn't say it, there's a lot. Not all of Proverbs, but there's a lot in Proverbs that, that supports this. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we turn to the anti-wisdom at the end of class. I'm going to skip um, women in Proverbs. You, should, you, can, you can go study it. It's not really super 21st century and egalitarian. Um, uh, although lady wisdom is personified, so is her anti-type, the strange woman who just wants to seduce young men. So, or Proverbs 31, the capable uh, wife also has some problems. But we'll, we'll, for another day, for another day. So let's, let's talk about the two sort of anti-wisdom books. Most of us, many of us, are familiar with Job. You may know of Job's story. Um, and this is, this is sort of an outline of the book, and I just want to say a few things about each one of them. Scholars recognize a narrative frame to the book of Job that doesn't stand in complete agreement with what is found in the book of Job. So the narrative frame is Job is this upstanding citizen, he's very successful, he's got a great family, a big house, lots of children, and he's righteous. There's no debate. He's a righteous person by, by all accounts. And one of, one of the members of the divine council, known as the adversary or Satan, says to God, hey, Job, he, he seems to have it all right. I bet he only worships you because he's got it all right. And so God, uh, in, in a, a moment of divine freedom that has caused theologians and ethicists problems since, says, fine, let's test this. Let's, let's roll the dice on Job's fidelity and see if the reason he blesses me is because I've given him things. And so you know the story. Job loses his family. He loses um, his health. He becomes sort of, he has boils and, and, and a skin disease. Um, and that's the narrative prologue. Great setup, and, it, and, it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's bad. And then in the conclusion, you may remember as well that eventually Job gets it, all, gets it all back, right? As if family is replaceable. Like he gets another family, and that's supposed to make it all good. But it tries to tie it up nicely with a bow. And in between, this is where the real money is, in between, is these series of dialogues and speaking points. Job has some tremendously unwise friends who represent the Jewish or the Israelite wisdom tradition. And their basic message through, oh, I don't know, 30 chapters is, Job, you're suffering. What did you do wrong? You've really screwed up, Job, because you lost your family, you lost your house, and now you're sick. What have you done wrong, Job? You better repent. You better confess. God will forgive you if you do this.
And so it's this back and forth. And Job gets increasingly angry, justifies himself in chapters 29 through 31, a little bit more dialogue, and then God speaks in Job 31. And God doesn't affirm whether or not Job is innocent. God doesn't give us answers about why innocent people suffer. God kind of says, who are you to ask me these questions? Were you the one who tamed the great sea beasts? I don't think so. And so we're left, if we didn't have the narrative conclusion, Job presses us with questions that we cannot answer. Is this world ordered? Does it make sense? Does God bless those who love him? Or is it all just for lot? Is it all just luck? And in many ways, Job's story is, as I said, the anti-type to wisdom. It's the anti to the Deuteronomy curses and blessings. And it leaves open a, a lot of skepticism. Who knows wisdom? Can anybody know the ways of God? And so it's, it, in many ways, confronts the wisdom tradition that we find in Proverbs. Doesn't give us a resolution. And if that's not bad enough, we also have Ecclesiastes. Do you see my image that I found on Google? I'm sure it's copyrighted and I will get sued. Um, never better, right? It's a dead guy in a casket. And it's a good, good image for the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, just a, a bit of its structure. Um, there's a, a superscription which talks about it being uh, coming from, from Solomon. There's an opening poem and a closing poem. And then there's two main parts. And I'm sure you know the, the first part, which is vanity of vanities. How many have ever heard vanity of vanities? Ecclesiastes is read a lot at funerals. My dad has already told me he wants me to read it at his, which is a little morbid, but that's fine. Vanity of vanities. Another way of, of translating vanity is vapor. Life as we know it is a vapor, Ecclesiastes says. If that's not Sunday morning uplifting, I don't know what is. And, and through a series of, of, of prose and, and poetry, the author of Ecclesiastes basically says, what, what good is this life? The only thing that is certain, not taxes, uh, Ecclesiastes would say, is death. And no matter how hard you work, if you work hard or if you don't work hard, it's all a vapor. It's all going away. And so the response, actually, if, you have, if you've been to worship already, you'll hear the response in Jesus' parable. Ecclesiastes' response is, eat, drink, and be merry. We're all going to die, so enjoy life while you can. Doesn't, it doesn't say don't think about living wisely, but it's kind of a waste of time. Because we never know what's going to happen. 